Right. <laughs> I'm going to try and talk now. Um, and uh, if you open your Bibles, we're going to start. We're going to start in Matthew 10, and then we head in to Galatians, which, at first sight, doesn't make a lot of sense. So we're really trusting God's going to help us. Help me anyway. Um, so it's a big message. Big ideas anyway. Here we go. Big concepts. Matthew 10. Jesus sends out the 12 is what the heading is in, in my Bible. Uh, verse 1. He called his 12 disciples and gave to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Those, these are the names of the, the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Uh, that's a whole message on its own. The, the, these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Okay, so this is the first commissioning of apostles in the Bible. And it is what he tells them to do. He's already given them authority over evil spirits and every disease and sickness. And he tells them not to go to the Gentiles on this occasion or the Samaritans, but go to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead as you do, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you receive, freely give. Don't take any gold or silver or copper in your belts, take no bag for your journey or extra tunic or sandals or staff for the worker is worthy of his keep. Galatians 4. Right now let's just have some order to these. You're going to get three scriptures from me this morning so it's going to be super legal preaching. Uh, go to chapter 3, Galatians, verse 1. It says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit that you're now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Chapter 4. Verse 1. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He's subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we are children, we were, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you're sons of God, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since you're a son, God's made you also an heir. Woohoo! that's pretty good. Formerly you did not know God. You were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? 
You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. And uh, I just felt God say to me this morning, lots of Christians are feeling weak and miserable because they're believing weak and miserable things. Um, And if there is a message title, then it's, we're supposed to be great and glorious, not weak and miserable. Um, But a lot of us feel, I've certainly felt that in my Christian life, and I've even felt that feeling weak is spiritual. And and in some settings, feeling miserable can be spiritual. (laughs) Do do you know, have anybody ever come across that kind of thing? And, And, you know, ever so serious, ever so humble, ever so feeble, and you're a superhero and, and I'm like something wrong here when so let, let's now I'm going to go right back to where we started Jesus plan was not only to save the world but to completely change it So he actually didn't send the disciples to only save lots of people and put them in churches. Don't mishear me because he did send them to see people saved. He didn't send, their mission was not to rescue people out of a nasty world into a nice holy church. He actually sent them to change the world. He told them that they, they weren't going to become salt and light. He told them they were salt and light. That actually very nature of a disciple of Christ is that wherever you are, you are salting and lighting. And he told them to go and disciple nations at the end of Matthew. And, and we've reduced that to disciple people or disciple people in nations. But actually he didn't say that. And, and It's such a huge thing that us as evangelicals have had to shrink it because we can't quite believe it. Uh, How do you ever disciple a nation? Well, I think there have been seasons in history where nations have been wholly influenced by by the gospel and by Christians. Uh, And if you read a lot about the the British Empire in the mid-1800s, it was incredibly influenced by by Christian values. I'm not saying the whole thing was holy and good, but I am saying that there was an incredible uh, thing going on where laws were changed that affected the lives and livelihoods of, of millions of people, in fact, a quarter of the planet. And by the early 1900s, they were calling a conference together to seriously discuss how in their generation they could complete the evangelization of the whole planet. I forget the date, but it was early 1900s. So there was a huge expectation that something could happen. And there was then a great outpouring. You had Azusa Street, you had the revival in South Wales, etc., etc. And then you had the First World War, which actually killed, literally, a lot of the fruit of those, uh, of those revivals. The men that got saved in, from the mines got slaughtered on the fields in France Um, so there has been seasons there have been eras where the the gospel has had incredible influence and there are places in the world now where 
the gospel has incredible, incredible influence to such a degree that the atmosphere of a whole nation, whether, the, whether you're a Christian or not, isn't the point. The point is the atmosphere of the nation you live in is completely affected by the ethos and the values and the atmosphere and the life and the hope and the love that is Jesus and his gospel and his people. That's what Jesus said, go do. I don't think there's been a generation that has thoroughly grasped it or thoroughly done it. But that is what's on our desk from heaven. Can you imagine that? You know, get an email from your boss. Your job today is to change the world completely. And here's 30 quid to do it with. It'd be like an episode of The Apprentice gone wrong, wouldn't it? You know, if it's not Monday, Friday, you're fired. <laughs> oh, I need more water. Lost it. Is that mine? Yeah, thanks. So we have this massive assignment, and so massive is it that often when you talk like this to Christians, actually, rather than go, the, their spirits rise and they go, wow, they go, oh. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. Get off and let's have an easier message. But we, the problem is the easier message is a dead message at the end of the day. And that's what was happening in Galatians. So I believe we're in a, we're in a season where God is restoring his original intentions, his original mission, and the, the original style in which it was supposed to be done. All right? That's one sentence that says quite a lot. Because to get the job done, there's absolutely no way that we can do it. And one of the reasons it hasn't been done is because I think we've not done it Jesus' way. So just because it hasn't been done doesn't mean it can't be done. All right? And we are very good at arguing from our experience that things in the Bible can't possibly be true. And that's just not the right way to do it. God wants to, we have to continually be converted to expect the things he says rather than the things that we feel are possible. Otherwise we always squeeze him down to our own experience and our own experience never grows. We shrink God rather than grow ourselves. Um, so I believe we're, it, we're from heaven now, God is saying some huge things to the church in the world he's saying I want it done like I said do it and he commissioned the apostles and his first statements to them was not go plant a few churches and make a bit of a difference he said go tell the people the kingdom of God has showed up raise the dead heal the sick cleanse the lepers if you keep doing that you're going to change the planet Our challenge is that we, have to, we are emerging from hundreds of years of doing it a different way. So this is kind of, it's not too boring, is it, so far? No, it's challenging, but hopefully not too boring. So somewhere in 300 years after the, the death of Jesus, the church became the Roman Catholic Church 
and it all became very political and very, very military-based. It was very hierarchical, and you had a pope, and then you had um, the, the, the sort of ministers of the Catholic Church. But it, it was very state-orientated, and you went to church, and you had a father or the... What, I forgot the name of the, of the ministers in the Roman Catholics now, but you had the, the priest, that's the word I'm looking for, and a lot of the model they took for that was Old Covenant, Old Testament model. So the priest was a bit of an intermediary and still is in some cases. So he administers the sacrament and acts as a bit of a go-between you and God in some ways. Um, and you went to the church. And even in some periods of history, the government used the church as a kind of place where you, they knew where everybody was on a Sunday. So you, you actually re, was recorded who was at uh, communion. And, and, and they used baptism of infants as a, as a kind of crude means of having some sort of record of you know, births and deaths and marriages. That was the way the state used the church and the church used the state. Then the Reformation comes along and it shifts. So we're saved by faith. Everybody has a relationship with God. It's very personal. But the structure of the church doesn't shift that much so now you have parsons and ministers and pastors and and we all go to church and they teach us and the and the emphasis has been very pastoral teachery so the mindset shifted from that era but not hugely so the the goal of pastors and teachers and people that are motivated in that gift which is in the bible is to gather people to make them secure to teach them to instruct them to, to not let them be exposed to too much risk, to not allow them to be disappointed. And, and, and even, I, I was listening to a message recently uh, about healing from someone who, who'd had a really difficult time with it. And I thought, so much of the message was shaped around pulling into their experience what God said in a desire to not... In fact, there was a little line in, in, in the message that was, you know what? Um, if we believe that healing is such a huge thing and it can be there for everybody, that's just a bit ridiculously beyond our faith, isn't it? Therefore, it can't be true. Uh, okay, that makes me feel comfortable in my unbelief, doesn't it? It's like, oh, I don't have to believe for amazing stuff anymore. I can believe for nothing and feel good. That's the tendency of, of pastoral ministry is that you take what people are experiencing and you don't want them to be too frightened or too disturbed or too challenged because actually your motivation is to care for people at some level and so you can end, the emphasis can end up boiling the thing down rather than stretching people's imagination and faith and expectation. And, and actually, it's not wrong to be a pastor and a teacher and have that motivation. People need looking after. They need teaching. They need gathering. But when you have the whole, the whole culture of Christianity dominated by that, what you can end up with, and, and, and I've, I've certainly been tempted this way, is that you end, because you're a gatherer, you're actually building your kingdom. And it's all about how many bums you've got on your seats and you're, you know, come to us because we'll love you the best and we'll teach you the best. And it starts to become about 
agreement and, and we're scared of anything that would separate and you get in the flavor. That, I think, is a lot of the flavor of Christianity for hundreds of years. It's focused around this pastoral mindset and gather, gather, gather. But the outcome, I think, is that you end up with this, I'm building my kingdom and we have this slight competition with the guy down the road. Well, we're going to, you know, well, we don't agree with them. Our doctrine is purer than theirs. We love you better than them, so you should come here. Anybody recognize this? Now, Jesus didn't send the apostles to do that. And I think we, God is again wanting to emphasize the plan. He's, he's, he's wanting to release to us a, a better vision, a, a, a broader vision, and an and apostolic vision, which is for his kingdom coming, uh, which is absolutely shot through with signs and wonders. That is, that is, it is a bold proclamation of a present kingdom, not something that we've just got to wait for when we die. Because what's happened is in the church, even the message that came in the 80s, and some of you weren't even born then, but just stay with it. In the 80s, there was a fresh understanding of uh, that God's kingdom was the already and the not yet. So you could have some, but there's still more to come. And what even in the, in the 20 years since that message came, or, or more, we've ended up, we've ended, oh, I'm getting older than I thought I was. <laughs> We've ended up making it more, more not yet than already. So everything that's not happening is, well, you know, it's, we're, we're living in the already and the not yet, so we've just got to wait for the not yet. Okay, I'm just, this is, I know this is kind of big picture stuff, but let's keep going. Thank you. The... <clears throat> Moves of God historically haven't lasted. And we're having a little bit of a move of God, and I'd love it to last. I'd like it to last longer than my lifetime, and I'd like it to grow. And one of the things that's happened in moves of God is that they're amazing, and then they, they fall into this thing called legalism. Because there's not been an apostolic atmosphere, I think. And what people have done is take a move of God and try and squeeze it into a pastoral mindset. What people have done, they've taken a move of God and in the desire to honor the move and honor the people that are in the move, they've reduced it to a bunch of principles and rules that you're supposed to keep doing and then we'll keep having the same results. And of course the answer is it doesn't work. So you can go to places, you know, go to the Outer Hebrides, to Lewis and Harris, and it's some of the most legalistic Christianity you'll find on the planet. But that's actually where the last, you know, revival outpouring was in these islands. And, and the same is true of South Wales, and the same is true in different places you can go. The outcome is that this thing gets shrunk into a bunch of rules and it dies. The dynamic dies. And here you have an apostle writing to a church where this is happening. All right? This kind of fits. So in Galatians, he writes to them. 
And this is how apostles think. He's looking at what's going on and he sees the move of God dying. He's saying, you used to have signs and wonders. You used to move by the Spirit. Now you're going after rules. And what I, want, I just want to try and sketch for you, what does apostolic look like rather than pastoral? I want to kind of stretch our concept a bit today because the way that we're going to keep going is by grasping apostolic ministry, not reducing everything into what we've had for centuries, which is pastoral teacher. Trust me, I'm right. You'll agree with me eventually. (laughs) The lack of genuine apostolic ministry has been, I think, one of the main causes of the lack of a continued move of God. Um, and, and, And I mean apostolic ministry like we just heard Jesus said to the apostles, this is what you're supposed to go do. The kingdom of God is here. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper. And later on in Matthew says, go change the whole world. Just disciple a few nations for breakfast. And they believed him. And it wasn't about numbers. It didn't, there, wasn't lots of, there wasn't lots of them. There was 12. And they believed him. And, and so often I've been guilty of this as a leader. So when we get some more people, then we'll start talking about changing the city. No. (laughs) One person can change the world. Two people, 12 people. Doesn't need to be lots and lots of people. So here you have... A new era is this apostolic era. Jesus has died, he's risen from the dead, and he's appointed these guys with a phenomenal revelation, and, and, and Paul becomes one of them, and he's looking at what's happening in the churches in Galatia, which is a region. So it's not one church, it's a region of churches that are becoming legalistic. And he says, you had a move of God and you're killing it. And he says to them, he says, who's bewitched you? Now, if you grew up when I grew up, there used to be a program on telly called Bewitched. And then someone made a film of it more recently. It wasn't as good as the original, it never is. But, and it's all a bit nice, isn't it, Bewitched? It's a bit sort of, it's all clean and nice and it's all a bit of fun and, and it's all very sort of positive witchcraft type idea. Do you know you know, no, have you noticed that everybody's a white witch? Nobody's, nobody's dark and horrible, really. We're all white witches. So you can read that word and go, oh, who's bewitched you? And it's like, it's a bit flat and a bit, oh, it's just a bit of a fanciful. No, 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 this, this literally means who's put a demonic curse on you? Who's hexed you? Who's put a spell on you? Well, what are they doing? They're doing the law. But didn't God give the law? Yeah. They're doing things that are in the Bible in the wrong season and in the right season it was God. Now it's demonic. And it's killing the move of God. Hello? Still like me? 
I like rules. Well, this says if you live your Christianity by rules, you're demonized. You're submitting to demonic influences and you don't know it. That's why the miracles are stopped. Because you're drawing on your own flesh and you're demonically influenced and so the miracles are dying out. You can't say that. I just said it. (laughs) The Galatians were doing stuff that is in God's word. The Old Testament. But it was no longer working because God was no longer in it. Because there was a New Testament they were supposed to be living in. And the New Testament was made by the blood of Jesus. It cost him his life. His innocent death, his brutal death, his suffering, etc. And his amazing resurrection ushered in a completely new day in which the old stuff is now obsolete. That's what the Bible says. The old covenant is obsolete. Hebrews, you can look it up later. Hebrews 8.13. It's obsolete and it's aging. And Ephesians 2 tells us that Jesus abolished in his flesh the law and its commandments. So legalism isn't a happy alternative. It's a demonic deception. It's a route to powerlessness. It's a route to being weak and miserable. Because they're weak and miserable. Once it was God's way, now they're weak and miserable principles. In fact, the ESV margin in chapter 4, where it talks about um, you were born under the law. Full rights of sons. Back a bit. There we go. Why are you under slavery to basic principles of the world? Talks, the ESV margin talks about, talks about basic spirits. What are you saying? I'm saying something that was once holy is now actually demonized. Oh, you can't say that. Well, it's just said it. It's what the Bible says. Once something that was God's way has now become something that is in absolute opposition to God's way because people are trying to take something from one season and impose it in another where it doesn't belong. God's doing something else now and you're trying to resurrect something that he's not doing. Hello? Which makes a lot of sense. Of You know that story I've referred to a few times in Luke 9. It says that... <coughs> actually this is incredible because you've got Peter, James and John go up the Mount of Transfiguration and they see Jesus in all his glory and then, and then they, and they see, interestingly, they see Elijah and Moses then they come down and they can't get this demon out of a boy and then the Samaritans oppose them so James and John say Lord, should we call down fire from heaven? I mean, they've just seen Elijah and maybe they know there's this prophecy right at the end of the Old Testament about in the, in the last days the, the, the uh, Elijah will come again. And they're like, wow. Should we call down fire? Because Elijah killed 102 people, I checked it, with fire in one, one, uh, 2 Kings chapter 1. So he gets 
two squads of 50 soldiers come to arrest him and with, with their kind of captain or leader. And twice, Elijah just says, if I am a prophet of God, let fire fall from heaven and consume you. And 51 frazzled bodies. Twice. So it's in the Bible. And the prophet who's appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration, a prophet who's greatly honored in the Old Covenant, does this stuff with impunity. And then James and John, they're on a high here. They've been in the Mount of Transfiguration. They've seen Elijah. They think, these guys are opposing us. Let fire fall on them, Lord. Yeah. But Jesus rebukes them. And in many, many sources, it then says, you do not know what spirit you are of. I thought, well, we're the same spirit of Elijah. Not anymore. That's old covenant. So if you, you're going to have to read another Bible verse. Go to the last verse of the Old Testament. Just, they should have got a clue from this. But then there's lots of things we should get clues from that we don't. Malachi 4. Last verse of the Old Testament, last two verses. <clears throat> See, I'll send the prophet Elijah before the great and ter- dreadful day of the Lord comes. But what's he going to do? He says, I'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers or else I'll come and strike the land. Because, wow, that doesn't sound like Elijah to me. What happened to the fire-breathing sword wielding you know kills 800 prophets with a sword type guy it sounds a bit kind of it's all relational it's all heart it's all warm and gooey now what happened to grrr, Elijah new season so it prophesies this coming of an Elijah in this next season that God this new covenant era but even he is transformed because the era has changed into, some, in, into an anointing or a presence that is there to restore the hearts of children to fathers and fathers to children. He's a heart restorer now, not a fire burner. So the disciples are living out the wrong season. So what was God and was inspired and everything absolutely right for Elijah there sat on top of the hill burning up soldiers is now completely wrong for the disciples they're living in the wrong season they're living from the wrong spirit now hello you getting this so you can't read the bible flat you can't go Genesis Leviticus on, you know, kings, judges, on and on and on and on. Then, then Jesus and, and Revelation and think, oh, somehow I've got to make sense of it all and it all has the same meaning to me now. It's not designed like that. It's not written like that. And if you try and do that, you're going to make a big mess. That's what the disciples were doing. They're saying, oh, Elijah, fire! Wrong. But we know the book, he did fire. Yeah, but that's just wrong. Wrong season, wrong era, wrong covenant. That's what was happening to the Galatians. Along comes the people saying, you know what? You need rules. 
Because they're in, look at them, they're in the Bible. They're everywhere. You need to be circumcised. You need to keep special days. God inspired the book. Here they are. Keep them, Paul says, demonic. Yeah, but all scripture is inspired by God. Yeah. And profitable for teaching, reproof, and blah, blah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the law is good. Yes, it is, if you use it properly, is what he says. They were using it improperly. I'm going to do this again. This will help you. The Bible is split into, there's actually six covenants. And covenant is the way that God manages his relationship with men. And the way he reveals himself. And in every era, God shows something fresh of himself. Jesus is the pinnacle. He is the ultimate expression of God, okay? Okay. You can't get a better revelation of God than him. He's the ultimate perspective. So there you are. You live in Noah's day. And it's sinful and it's horrible. God says, I had enough of all this sin. It's going to rain. It's going to be like Glasgow on steroids. So I'm just going to kill everybody except eight of you and a load of animals. Because that's what God's like. So down comes the rain. Everybody dies apart from the eight in the ark. And then after all that, God comes to Noah and he makes a covenant with him. It says, you know what? I'm not going to do that again. Was it God when he did it? Yes. But is there sin everywhere like there was then? Yes. Is it going to rain till everybody dies? No. Because God made a covenant, stuck a rainbow in the sky and said, I'm not going to do that again. It was me, but it's not me anymore. Oh. And then along comes Abraham. He makes a covenant with Abraham. He says, every male at eight days old has to be circumcised or they're not with me. But lots of people that existed before then who were in fellowship with God and were honored by God like Noah who weren't circumcised. But God says, well, this is the deal now. Was it me before? Yeah. Is it me now? Yes. Is it different? Yes. Live with it. <laughs> You're getting to know something else about me. I'm a covenant-keeping God. I'm faithful to a thousand generations. I'm making a promise with you, Abraham, that through your seed all the ends of the earth will be blessed. Ooh, but God looks a bit different now than he did Certainly before Noah. Is it the same God? Yes. Is our understanding of him different? Yes. Is he still doing what he did before Noah? No. This kind of freaks us out. We think, well, God's the same yesterday and today and forever. Yes, he is. But his revelation of himself to us has increased and changed over the ages. You need to know what season you're in or you can end up fried. Or demonized, thinking you're doing God's will. So along comes Moses. And he gets them all out of Egypt. And God makes this humongous covenant with him and the whole nation. And there's all these rules and regulations and laws. And there's a, there's a tabernacle and there's offerings. And none of it existed before. Abraham didn't have to do any of that. Was that God? Yes, it was. Is this God? Yes, it is. Then David comes along and he, God makes a covenant with him and he has this genius idea 
to not do the tabernacle thing like Moses did, where there was three courts and lots of offerings, and, and, and only one person went into the presence of God once a year, and that was a rope round, tied around him in case he did something wrong in the presence, and he died so they could pull him out. That was it. One person, once a year, got into the intimate, powerful, holy presence of God, and that was at risk of his life. So... You know, we kind of think, oh, isn't it great to be in the presence of God? People were scared. I think that's why they cast lots. It was like, oh, I don't fancy it. And they had pomegranates and bells on the bottom of the robes so they could hear that if the, if the tinkling stops, they pulled the rope. That was the system. Presence of God before the ark. Wrong person, wrong time, you're dead. David has a genius idea. He says, I'm going to build a tent. We're going to stick the ark in the middle. Then all you Levite guys, all you Levites who who slaughter things and make offerings, I want you to sing and play musical instruments instead. And they're like, yeah. Which court are we in? There isn't one. There's one tent. Uh, With the ark of the presence in the middle. Yeah. Don't we draw lots and just one guy goes in? David says, no, because I've been in there and it's cool in the presence. (laughs) And they're like, you what? Yeah, I want you all to go in. I want something to sing, some of you to play music. I want it to go on and on and on. You're all standing in the presence of God all the time. Yeah, the sacrifice thing, that's... We've still got his tent on another hill and, and we'll get some of your mates to keep the sacrifice thing going over there. But in my city, it's going to be praise and worship in the presence. It's not in the book. We're going to die. Can you imagine the first worship service? <laughs> yeah, how many ropes are you going to need? It's my shift. The, the, what's it, I forget the name of all the guys, all the musicians, and they're like, you know, they've composed all these songs. David's got all these great songs going, and there's the tent and the Ark of the Covenant's in the middle, and they're like, who's going to walk in the flap first? <laughs> you know, they already kill, God already killed a guy taking the Ark from the one tent to the other tent. Do you remember the story? He raises his hand to the, to the Ark cause, to, to sort of settle it, and they zzzz, He's fried. So there they are. Man, they've got a history here. You know, if you look in the Old you know, the, the ground swallowed people. People with wrong incense got eaten up with all kinds of diseases. Oh, and they're like, oh, if we get this wrong, we're dead. And there's no pension plan in the Levitical priesthood. So they all get, let's get in tune. Let's just be in tune. Twang. On the old harp and lyre, you know, twang. And they go in. And it works. And it works for years. Nobody dies in the presence. But it's not in the book. It is now. He just wrote it. Why? Because David had a covenant with God. And it was different. David reached into the future, actually. He, he was a down payment of the new covenant that was to come, where we all can stand in the presence, and it's a joy, not, not a fry up for heaven. Isn't that exciting? 
And if you read, it, it's two chronicles. You can look this up <clears throat> somewhere. Totally lost it. Anyway, somewhere in two chronicles, it tells you that actually David got it with his prophets. The whole plan. It's uh, Gad the seer and Nathan the prophet and David wrote all this stuff down. So when Hezekiah recovers the temple, he does all this stuff that David had planned because he got this prophetic revelation about what was to come and about praise and worship and nobody's going to die. You're all going to enjoy seeing my presence. And so you get all these songs. We sing them all. They're all David's stuff from back then. Isn't that exciting? But it changed. And then comes Jesus. And he changed everything. If it isn't in him, we don't want it. Even if it's in the whole of the rest of the book, what does Jesus say? Come on now. Think about it. Each one of these covenants, things change very significantly. The most significant change was Jesus dying on a cross and rising again from the dead. What about Job? I don't care about Job. I want to understand Jesus and then I'll understand Job. What about the law? Well, Jesus said that he fulfilled the law and the prophets and the apostles' interpretation of what Jesus did was that that actually he ended the law era full stop. And if I come under law, rule and legalism, I'm now coming under a demonic spell, not happily pleasing God. Hello. So lots of people are feeling weak and miserable because they're still under weak and miserable principles. Just say something nice to me. Thank you. I love you too. So Jesus introduced a whole bag of new stuff. Like we don't call fire on people anymore. Get it? Disciples, you raise the dead, you don't kill them. Basic fundamental shift. I've sent you to raise the dead, not kill people. That was massive. Lots of our Bible heroes we celebrate killed lots of people. They made a song about David. Called us, Saul has killed his thousands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. David's killed his tens of thousands. He's an awesome hero. Now we celebrate. How many people did you raise from the dead? So that's really different, isn't it? At least it was when I went to school. He introduced Father and family trinity rather than God who is holy and not approachable and, whole, and all that. Hello? Jesus came to display the Father. If you have an, an attitude to God that he's all holy and unapproachable and in impenetrable light, then that's an old covenant idea. It's not that he isn't those things. It's just what his revelation is in this covenant is his father. He's approachable, he's tender, he's affectionate, he's affirming. He's not threatening, he's welcoming. He's calling you in. He's up for intimacy. He's a dad on the throne. Hello? Lots of Christians live with God on the throne. Oh, he's a bit scary. He's a bit woo, he's a bit wah. It's so other than I could never. 
Uh, Jesus came to say, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And as he said that, he was releasing the heart of the Father to a generation. Why did he say, a new commandment I give to you, love one another? Because it was a new commandment. This genius bit of Bible exegesis. Because the old covenant was, I've said this to you before, you know, love your neighbor, but hate your enemies. And kill them if possible. Especially if they don't believe in God like you do. What do we do to these unbelieving Philistines and parasites and whatever rights? Well, we're there to slaughter them. And we celebrate the maximum slaughterage. Jesus said, love people. Love your enemies. Love your neighbors. Love yourself. Love everybody. That's new. He says, build a church where everybody agrees. No, he didn't say that. He said, build a church where everybody loves. That means we love people we don't agree with. Well, that's a new idea in the church, isn't it? Wow, I don't agree with you, but I love you. You know what? Let's love people we don't agree with and see what happens. Jesus said, I will build my church. And he said, a new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. What do you think his church is supposed to be built on, agreement or love? Let's have a vote. Who thinks agreement? Who thinks love? Yeah, we all know it's true, really. So why are we so like, whoa, we've got the perfect doctrine. Everybody thinks they've got the perfect doctrine. We know we're right. (laughs) But I don't agree with me five years ago. It's ludicrous. I've a small mind. God's huge. The Bible is... Amazing. Let's give one another a break and love one another. What else did he do? He bought a kingdom now. Oh, I love this. Not postponed. Not kingdom maybe. Not kingdom lottery if you're lucky. The kingdom's come. I've heard a lot of preaching from a lot of great people who basically leave you with the impression that what Jesus said was, if you're lucky, the kingdom might touch you. They went out with confidence. And he told them, and this is what he did, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Let's heal a few sick. And I'll... Yeah? And I hear stuff and I think, Yes, but you must remember that we don't have the kingdom in fullness yet. You know, we're not yet fully revealed as sons of God. And, you know, those days when there's no more tears and no more sickness and no more crying and all that stuff, that's all in the future. Yes, I know. But when Jesus came, he shocked the living daylights out of everyone because he went around saying that that day had come. In fullness, in his person. That was the shocking thing. There was an expectation of a coming kingdom already where everything would be perfect. They read Isaiah about the lying, laying down with the lamb and all that malarkey. What they were shocked about was that it could show up in him. And that lions still ate lambs. That was confusing. 
He's saying the kingdom's come, I just saw a lion eat a lamb. That doesn't make sense. No, he's saying it makes sense in me because that fullness where the whole planet is changed is yet to come. But the full impact of the kingdom can be felt through me, my words, my ministry, my anointing, and the angels that accompany me. I am not the kingdom maybe or the kingdom partial or the kingdom on installments. I am the kingdom come. The kingdom of God is amongst you, he said. Well, which bit of it? All of it. Do you see, we can just subtly shift it to, well, you know, it, it's in the, we're in the already, or not, we're in the overlap of the ages, so that means that, you know, maybe you're, not everybody's going to get healed like they did with Jesus. Jesus said he was the kingdom come. And when he prayed for the sick, they got healed. Is that in my Bible? Yes, is that in your Bible too? Well, why is it different for him than for us? Go away and think about that. He said, it's now. Now is the time. Repent now, because the kingdom of God is at hand. If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come amongst you. What's supposed to happen is the kingdom is supposed to come more and more and more in that pure and unadulterated form so that the government of God is manifest on the earth so we all know what he really looks like, which is a father who loves his children and likes to deliver people from sickness and Satan and sin until the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God. We're not waiting for it to happen. We are making it happen until it happens. I'm going to say that again because that was good. We're not here just waiting for this perfect thing to arrive one day in the sovereignty of God. We're here told by Jesus to pray for the kingdom to keep coming more and more and more until the day that it comes in its final fullness. We're actually introducing the day. As 1 Peter says, we're actually hastening the day. Hello. Hello. Nearly done. So, <clears throat> I kind of said a lot of this already. The, the, last, the last two things. Jesus, Jesus was breathtakingly gracious. In a sea, in, he was in the overlap of an old season dying and he was introducing a new one. He was breathtakingly gracious. He introduced grace, not law. So a woman caught in adultery is brought to him. The law is very clear. should be dead. Jesus is the full revelation of the Father heart of God. The Father heart of God doesn't kill sinful people. It restores them. Hello? doesn't shoot them, doesn't shut them away, it restores them. And, and often we disqualify ourselves or others disqualify us. That's not, that's old covenant. He says, whoever's got no sin, let them throw the first stone. And when they've all disappeared, and he's the only one who could throw a stone because he's the only sinless one, he just says, 
just don't just go away and don't do it again if nobody condemns you I don't condemn you how about that that's God had a bad week done something awful do you know what he says I don't condemn you <laughs> you want to know that father don't you if you get just a a great telling off every time you do something wrong. Eventually, you just keep quiet and hide all your sin, hoping you won't find out. But if you know, he's not going to condemn you. So Jesus dies on a cross. He's risen from the dead and appoints the great apostle Paul who writes these amazing words. There's no condemnation for those in Christ. And he doesn't add, if you were a good boy. That's the starting place. So if we're feeling weak and miserable, it's because we're under the weak and miserable principles of the old. This is a powerful kingdom with a loving father. We're free from law and legalism. There's no condemnation. He's a tender-hearted God who loves to put his arms around us, encourage us, and urge us on. And he's given us this incredible commission. Jesus was just wanted to take over the whole world, and he chose you to do it. You can't do it with rules, you can't do it with the law, but if you know that you are chosen by him and the kingdom of God is at hand, and even your failures can be turned around for successes, we can change the world. I think that's much more of an apostolic paradigm, and there's a lot more I could say. It's more Jesus thing. And let's all gather, let's all agree, let's all be careful. I thought that was a good message. I just thought that was, that was okay. A bit ragged around the edges, but let's just pray and, and we're done. Father, thank you. Thank you that we live in a new era. It's called the New Covenant. It cost you a lot to make it. I pray deliver us from living in the old one in any shape or form. Lord, I pray that we'd live as sons and daughters. I pray that we would live free of condemnation. I pray we'd live as those powerful kingdom people bringing the future into the present. Thank you, Lord. You love to raise people from the dead more than kill them. Thank you, I live in that era. We live in that era. Thank you, this church (coughs) is going to change Glasgow and Scotland. I'm going to make you famous. Thank you for all our brothers and sisters around this city that we love and, and we pray that they would change this city and this nation and the nations as well. Lord, let us all get our eyes off our flaws and onto you, off our differences and onto you. And Lord, I pray for an outbreak of love in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to me work my way through that. I appreciate uh, that today. And I think we've got some tea and coffee and cakes and juice and stuff. Amen. Thank you.